0: One Hope Church We're going to continue our study this morning though in the book of Acts chapter eight. And um, it may seem like a you know, one of those deals where... This passage doesn't exactly seem like it lines up with like a Thanksgiving week, but there's two weeks of Thanksgiving, <laughs> two weekends surrounding it, and um, the next one, the message I think will uh, have more specifically to do with Thanksgiving. Um, and Jimbo's given that one, and then um, we're just going to continue this morning, rolling through the Book of Acts, uh, chapter eight. Um, we'll be in the first 25 verses. We. Looked at the um, first four verses last week as we finished um, chapter seven with the, you know, the murder, the execution of Stephen um, as a first martyr of the church. Um, and we see that that if anyone had learned to be like Jesus, it was Stephen. Um, in his death, he says, you know, Father, um, you know, don't hold this sin to their account. Um, he committed his his self to the Lord, and he was like the Lord in his life and in his death. And he's a tremendous example, you know, for each one of us of what it means to live and die as a servant of Jesus Christ. What it means to make sacrifice um, for Jesus, and he made the ultimate sacrifice—that a, a biggest sacrifice that a person can make um, on this earth—as he gave his own life. Uh, for the gospel of Jesus, for Jesus, and for the church. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read the, f- the first few verses and get rolling. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love uh, to us this morning. We, th- we are thankful uh, that this morning we can look to the cross as our ultimate reason to be thankful that while we were sinners, you did not leave us abandoned, you did not leave us stranded. But Lord, in your great love, uh, you sent redemption for us. Uh, We see that what Jesus did on the cross is greater than what Adam did in the garden. Um, We see that um, what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient for us. We're thankful that our Savior didn't just die, but he rose, a victorious Savior and King, And that, Jesus, you're the king of the universe today. And while in our lives and in every aspect of life, or in some aspects of life, Lord, it might not seem that you are king, but you are. um, Help us to know that reality and to live our lives according to that reality. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. So in the first few verses, it says that Saul... Approved of the execution, or he completely agreed with the murder of Stephen, and a great wave of persecution began that day sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers, who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. We made a few points just to remind from uh, from last week, but one of the uh, points I didn't mention last week is that the apostles stayed in in Jerusalem because they knew they still had a work to do there and a, and a mission to do there. You know, some people think that Luke didn't mean all the believers, but that he meant all the Greek speaking you know believers, the ones that were like Stephen, who maybe would have been more subject to the persecution, but I think that that's a, a, a jump here. I think here in this case, when, when Luke says, all the believers except the apostles, he means all the believers except the apostles, and that the church you know, would be rebuilt. We know throughout the rest of the New Testament there's still an active, you know, growing, th- thriving church in Jerusalem. So this wasn't the end of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, it was a, a new chapter in the church of Jerusalem, that had to be written. Um, and the apostles were going to stay there and to do what needed to be done, even at great risk um, to their, their own lives. So we have, um, we have that. We also have the, the first introduction to, to Saul. That's his Hebrew name. We know him a little bit more by his Greek name as he was a missionary to the Gentiles, became um, the apostle, the Apostle Saul or the Apostle Paul, um, and we have, are introduced to him here as someone who was trying to destroy the church, someone who was going house to house and throwing people into prison, um, that he, he thought that the people who followed Jesus were out of their minds and that the only way um, to stop this, this craziness was to you know, throw them into jail and to kill them. You know, that's, that's his mindset about it all. Um, and so we should have great hope in that, that even if a person seems like they hate Jesus, that doesn't mean they're always going to hate Jesus. You keep praying for that person, keep sharing the love of God with that person. Uh, if someone like Saul can be redeemed, then anyone can be. And so that gives us hope even as we pray for people who um, you know are part of ISIS or some terrorist you know organization. We can pray for those people um, knowing that, that um, they too could have such a change. So we also see that this persecution did not catch God by surprise. If you remember back uh, to chapter 4, verses 33 through 35, all the believers in Jerusalem sold their houses and land and laid that at the feet of the apostles to be distributed for the needs of the poor, for whatever the church, people in the church needed. Um, and that was God's grace. They did that at God's direction. God knew that this persecution would be coming. If they didn't do that, They would have had nothing to show for their houses and land. They just would have been taken over by other people. But instead, uh, they were able to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven through their generosity, through their obedience. And so God asked them to be obedient, even though at the moment that obedience didn't make sense. It wasn't necessarily the logical thing to do. Even if you were thinking about how to help people um, over the long term, that wouldn't be the most logical avenue. Um, yet that's what God had them to do. Um, so what looked foolish was indeed providential. And third, we see that the murder of Stephen, the persecution of the church, did not destroy the church. In fact, it had the opposite effect. It grew the church um, as people were, um, you know, scattered throughout the regions. And it's that same word that Jesus uses when he's describing, you know, the the, the word of God, the sower. You know, scattering the seed of, of the Word of God. It's that same concept and idea. And so really, the Word of God is, is going to be spread and furthered through this difficult time and through this persecution. And so what looked like the worst was in fact not the worst, but it was good. Uh, it was good um, for the church. And sometimes we need to have a harsh dose of that, of that reality. If you think about, for example, the church in, in China that oftentimes is under severe persecution or um, in Iran or in other, you know, North Korea and places like that, yet it is growing in those environments. Even, you know, in, nearer to us in, in Cuba, um, you know, under, under communism, yet the, the church has been thriving there for decades. Um, oftentimes not as visible, But yet, thriving, and so you know the the and the thing that we need to understand is that visibility does not mean influence, does not mean impact. You know, we can have a you can have, you know, a bunch of steeples with crosses on them all over a city. It doesn't mean that people's individual you know lives are being affected by that, impacted by that, and changed by that, and you can have none of that visible and have people's individual lives being impacted and changed every day. And so we often find places of severe persecution is where the church is growing the fastest. One of the reasons that it does that is because it kind of takes away everything that's secondary, everything that's not of the utmost importance gets left by the side because it, you have that question of what are the things that I'm willing to die for, and where what, what you're willing to die for, and that list gets pretty small, and then you become focused and prioritized on that that list, and so that's the per- persecution of the church is often a good thing. That's counterintuitive. I know it's not something that we normally pray for. We're not usually go, "Hey, Lord." Please, you know, allow the people in our in our nation to persecute us severely, so we can have a purification of the church, and the church can truly be on mission. That's not something many people pray for, but maybe we should. Uh, if you just look at church history, maybe we should. All right, um, let's, and then we have an example that's going to be be given. Now, remember Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts is continued with this theme that he began um, at the end of Luke and at the beginning of Acts about the followers of Jesus in Acts 1.8. You know, Jesus tells them that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus' statement is both a command and a prophetic word. It's a command in that, yes, go and do this, but it's also a prophecy of, like, this is going to happen. It is certain. It is certain. This is what the followers of Jesus are going to do. And so we have verse 5, Philip, for example, in the scattering, Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. And crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lamed were healed, and so there was great joy in that city." Some versions may say that um, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And you go, well, wait a second. Samaria is north of Jerusalem. How do you go down there? Well, elevation, Jerusalem's higher than Samaria is. So he went down. So a person on top of a mountain says, I'm going to go down to this town. Even if the town is north of them, they're still going to say, I went down to. Has, you know, talking about elevation, not direction. Not a big deal. But anyway, Philip is there. And he's doing his thing. He's um, like Stephen... Equipped, you know, he is full of the Holy Spirit. He's been given the a gift of the Holy Spirit to do miraculous things. He can preach the word, and he does so. And it says there's great joy in that city because of what's, of what um, Philip is doing there. Now, again, we need to remember the historical record that in general, the, the Jewish people and the Samaritans did not get along. They had a natural animosity between them. The Samaritans were people who were, were partially Hebrew, um, and they were partially of you know other Gentile ethnicities. And so they were a combo of that. Now, being that, they oftentimes caught it on both sides, but more so... From the, from the Hebrews, because the Hebrews did, many of them did have um, a, a view of ethnic superiority. Now, what that is, is, is taking a blessing and then abusing that blessing. Like, they had been given a blessing by God that, you know, God chose them as his people, the people that he would work through and give witness and testimony, that he would give the word of God through, that he would give the prophets through, that he would send the Messiah through. But what that should cause, any blessing like that that comes from God, should cause people to fall on their face and say thank you because they didn't do anything to deserve any of that. But instead, they often took it as, well, we're better than. And so they turned a blessing into a curse, really, in many ways. And so they looked down on the Samaritan people. Now, we see Jesus was... Different than that. In John chapter 4, you see Jesus with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. Um, You know, but we see it even in, we're going to see this as we go in the story of of Peter and John coming onto the scene here. There's a point where Jesus is traveling through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. And people in a particular town kind of dis, you know, Jesus. They, They, you know, we don't want anything to do with you right now. And James and John, same John that we're going to see here in Acts chapter 8, say, hey, should we call fire from heaven and, you know, smoke these people? Summarizing. That's basically what he said. You know, should we call fire from heaven? And Jesus rebukes them for that. So we see that Jesus viewed things differently than many of his contemporaries, even than many of his disciples, and he had to consistently work to shift their hearts and their, their ways of thinking to see how he saw. And really, that's one of the, the goals as, as being followers of Jesus that we have, is to see as Jesus sees. That's got to be one of our goals, is to see things how Jesus sees them. We have to try to strive to see things as Jesus sees them. We take off all of our own lenses and our cultural things and our personality things and all of that, and we try to see it how Jesus sees it, and we, and we can't do that on our own. We have to beg Jesus you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to see it as you see it. Now, Philip, um, you know, obviously didn't have that hang-up about going to the Samaritans, and he probably had less of that hang-up because of his cultural experiences growing up um, in a Greek-speaking environment, in a multi-ethnic, multicultural you know, environment, less isolated. Um, and so he naturally had a propensity to be more, more open. And we're actually going to see that through the, there's a couple other points he comes up, um, and we're going to see that through his whole life, that he has, he has this ability, uh, because of his life experience and because of what Jesus has done in his life, that he's, he doesn't have these cultural barriers. Uh, and it's easy for him to go from um, a Hebrew environment to a Samaritan environment to a Gentile environment. He kind of naturally is able to to go back and forth. But what we want to contend is that when Jesus has changed your mind and and your heart, you don't have to have had a ton of experience of that prior. It's easier if you have, but that any person is capable of doing that because any person can learn the way of Jesus. Because that's part of the way of Jesus. Part of the way of Jesus is that our you know, ethnic, cultural barriers are no longer barriers. They are in, instead celebrated opportunities. And so that's a change in, in heart and in, in mind. So, um, and, that's, and that's something that's obviously very relevant in the current atmosphere in, in our nation. Certainly we can learn from a person like Philip here. We can learn from a person like Philip. So then we move on to verse 9. It says, A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria, and claiming to be someone great. And everyone, to the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. And they listened closely to him for a long time because he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and as a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. Verse 14, when the apostles... In Jerusalem, heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message. They sent Peter and John there. And as soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we have have some things going on there. You have this man named Simon, who was a sorcerer, who, you know, used... The power of evil to astound the people and to get their attention, and to have made a great name for himself, he's viewed as even the power of God, and you know that shows the deceptive power that evil can often have. Um, And so, you know, yet when Philip comes onto the scene, Philip um, not only is able to do great miracles, but he also has a message. He has a message of of good news. He has a message that doesn't just astound a person, you know, for a a time, but he has a a message that can change a person's eternal perspective and and their eternity itself. And so what Philip has to offer is so much greater. And in comparison, it makes what Simon has done look kind of small. And even Simon himself has to acknowledge that this is so much greater than what I've been doing, what I've been a part of, and it says that he was believed and baptized. Now, as we go on, there are some who would argue that this belief was just was, was not a true faith, but was just an intellectual um, acknowledgement of the facts. Kind of like where it says, you know, even the demons believe and tremble. Okay. I don't know that I can fully buy into that. Uh, I'm not dogmatic about one way or another. I think there's things we can learn on, you know, from whether you have one perspective or the other's perspective on that. Um, in some ways, some of the things that are said here seem kind of said in such a way that, that it perhaps it at least questions and causes Simon, it's going to cause Simon to question whether he's truly a believer or not. It, that's kind of at, at the minimum baseline. It's going to have a, a, a checking of his self in a, in a very uh, dramatic way. But before we get into fully into that, um, the question as I was, you know, studying for this, that came to mind is like, you know, why weren't the Samaritans baptized in the way that Jesus had taught? Because uh, Jesus told, you know, his disciples to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and Holy Spirit. Why were they only baptized in the name of Jesus? Why had they not received the Holy Spirit even, you know, instantly when they believed? Now you can say that perhaps this was. You know, an oversight on the, on the part of Philip. We know what we're supposed to do today when we baptize people. We're supposed to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we could be speculating about that, but we do have a pattern in the book of Acts that is important for us to recognize. And this pattern in the book of Acts is whenever a, a new group of people come in, you know, in, in mass, not an individual or two usually, but when a, a whole uh, a new people comes into the church uh, there, the, the same thing happens. So what, here's, the, here's what we see. Um, in Acts chapter 2, you have Jewish people from all over the place, uh, from all over the Roman Greek you know, world, who uh, became followers of Jesus, and they received the Holy Spirit when they believed, but they were, you know it was at Pentecost. Yeah, they received the Holy Spirit there. Um, secondly, the Samaritans here in Acts chapter 8 that we're seeing. The next case will be in, with the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 when Peter at, at Cornelius' house. And the last case um, is later on in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul finds, when he goes to Ephesus, he finds people who believe in Jesus, but they haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And in each of these cases, you know, the apostles are going to you know, lay their hands on the people and the people are going to receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's, and it's this testimony that you, you, you have a, an, a, at least one apostle present at each of these cases. And I, and I believe it's for the unification of the church. Because of the ethnic divisions that were present in the world at this time, there needs to be a, a, a way that the apostles can say, no, God has given them the same Holy Spirit. You know, this, the same Holy Spirit of God who, who resides in you resides in them. Therefore, You are equal in God's sight, and you are equal in the church, and there isn't to be this hierarchy where one ethnicity is above another ethnicity. But this gives testimony to that reality that was verified by the apostles and could not be denied by any people, if any people in any church said, well, we don't accept them because they're Samaritans or we don't accept them because they're Gentiles or we don't accept them because, you know, another group would say, well, we don't accept them because they're, you know, Jewish and they had, you know, most of their people had rejected the Messiah. There's no way that any group can look at another group and say, well, God, you know, we're better than or God hasn't accepted you or, or whatever because the apostles would give testimony. No, they receive the Holy Spirit just as you have. So if you're re- legitimate, then they are legitimate and kind of takes that out. And so I think that that's really the, the main reason that you know it, it, it perhaps was was you know God's work here that they weren't baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit but just in the, in the name of Jesus. So, uh, now moving on to verse 18, this is when Simon saw the spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people. He offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps you will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see you are full of bitter jealousy. And are held captive by sin. That's pretty intense. Uh, that's pretty intense. But let's back up for a second. You know, and, and think about Simon and his position. You know, he had he was in the position before Philip came on the scene, where he was he was the man. He was the you know the people that the person that everybody else looked to. I mean, he was even called the great power of God. I mean, that's I mean you know significant. You know, fame. And, and with that, I'm sure this, that also made him money. You know, he, that those two things went together. You know, his power, his money, they, they were combined, right? So he thought that this was something that spiritual gifting is something that could be, you know, and spiritual authority was something that could be bought. That's a very dangerous, very dangerous idea, very dangerous thought. It's not something we see um, in the scriptures. Yet many people have um, this this thought today. Um, I remember many years ago hearing uh, Tony Evans, Dr. Tony Evans, uh, tell a story about um, you know in the church that he was a part of someone coming in and wanting certain things done and. And the answer to that was no. And the person says, But you know, but do you know how much money I've given to this church? And Dr. Tony Evans' um reply was, No, I I don't, but we can get the bookkeeper to look that up and write you a check. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> and so um, and in and in fact, sometime after that, we had a similar you know, in church we had a similar experience and I basically, as well, that seemed to be a good way to handle that approach. And it's interesting how people will back off once then because they actually are saying, you know, I have bought this this right. I have bought this right to make, you know, certain decisions. And it's like, well, you can, you know, if that's your heart. And then the person kind of backs you know, backs it. Well, that, that's not what I meant. Well, it is what you meant, but now you realize it's wrong. And so that's good that you realize it's wrong and you can repent of that and, you know, turn. And that's really, you know, what Peter wants Simon to do here, you know, is for him to, re- for a heart change, for him to repent of his wickedness. Because I, I, I mean, that's a direct quote, verse 22. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord and perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter. For a bitter jealousy, and held captive by sin. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the you know things here. You can, you kind of try to weigh these things back and forth. We see that in any case, you know, Simon made this profession of faith, and he was baptized. Those things are not deniable. You know, the authenticity of it, um, you know, God knows that. I think Simon knew that. You know. Uh, But it might have been a case even like Ananias and Sapphira where, you know, Peter gives this harsh warning because remember his experience with Ananias and Sapphira back in chapter 5 where they lied or their hearts were wrong in what they were were doing and, and at that point God had struck them dead and it's, you know, hey Simon, you know, you could have that same sort of fate if you don't get this corrected right here and now. But, you know, at a minimum, if Simon is a new creation, then he had the ability to walk walk in the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that all the desires of his flesh were done away with, just like those of us who are believers today. You know, I have the Holy Spirit. I have, I'm a new creation. I have the ability to say no to sin day by day, hour by hour. Yet, I still have my flesh and the natural bent, the flesh is not neutral. The natural bent of the flesh is rebellion, is disobedience, is pride, is jealousy, is, all of, you know, is lust, is arrogance. It's all of these things. That is the, the natural propensity of all human flesh. Overall, it's bent toward being self-serving. It's just what it is. And so that's why we're told that within us, there is a war between the spirit of the flesh. But we decide, I want to be very, very clear about that. We decide day by day, moment by moment, who we allow to sit on the throne of our hearts, either Jesus or our own flesh. We decide that, we allow that. We have the ability to surrender or to try to hold on to control. We can surrender the flesh or allow the flesh to continue to have a place of control. We're not powerless in this. We have those real decisions, just like Simon, even though he had the propensity of his heart, the propensity of his flesh, if he's a true believer, he had the power of the Holy Spirit and the ability to walk in the Spirit but we see that he was, he was prone to jealousy. He was used to being the center of attention. He enjoyed it. Um, he probably enjoyed the benefits, the practical financial benefits and the positional benefits and everything that that came along with. And now he saw the authority, the spiritual power of Peter and John. He saw that as a way to get his place back. It's kind of like, well, I can have Jesus and not really give up anything. Because you understand to begin with, he's got to give. To, if he's going to really have Jesus, then that means his old way of having his place in the world was utterly done away with. There was no place for him to be a sorcerer. <laughs> There's no place for him to you know, get himself to have that that attention and fame and all of those things. There's no place for him at all. If he's going to live a life surrendered to Jesus, it's going to have to be a completely different place that. That's his whole identity wrapped up in Jesus, and he's gonna to have to find a new way to live. You know, that's not a big that's that's not a big thing. I mean a little thing, that's a big thing. And it's a big thing for each person. For each person, when you you know come to Jesus, you have to find a new way to live. That new way to live has to be in having an identity that's in Christ, not in an identity in my flesh. My identity has to change. If my being is going to change, my thinking and my knowing is going to change, if my doing is going to change, I have to have an identity change. That identity change has to be wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Because we need to understand that there isn't anything inherently evil with desiring a spiritual gift or desiring spiritual authority. But it has to be for the right reasons. And again, many people today, um, you know, think these things are, are just bought and sold. And so, you know, go get a degree from a seminary. But what does that mean? It means you've had opportunity to learn stuff. And hopefully an opportunity to practice. To put some of the stuff that you learned into practice. But it doesn't mean that a person is Spiritual doesn't mean that a person is close to God. And it's it's a sad thing in the church today because in many churches today, that piece of paper makes someone qualified or not qualified, regardless of their their heart. And that's a change in the church from the early church. I'd say that's a big change. But the reality is that a piece of paper is easier to evaluate than a person's heart. And so that's kind of the I guess the easier way to do it. And yes, people do need to to know a certain about and you know, I have one of those pieces of paper. So for whatever that's worth. But and I'm thankful for the opportunities that gave to, you know learn and and, um, be challenged in certain ways. That piece of paper, it's a piece of paper. It It doesn't make myself or any other individual spiritually qualified to preach or to teach or to do anything in the church. By itself. There has to be the heart that's for the Lord the motivation and, and Solomon could hear the words of First Timothy chapter 6 where it says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, shall we, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so Peter doesn't want to see Simon go down that road of piercing himself through with many sorrows out of his jealousy and out of his out of his greed and um, wicked desires. We have to remember that Jesus had taught his disciples something different because really, again, it goes back to the motivation of Simon. He thought it was something you could, you could buy. It's not something you could buy. But why he wants it is ultimately for himself. But Luke records in Luke 22, beginning verse 24, it says, "...the disciples began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. But Jesus told them, In this world the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people." but among you will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. So what he's saying is, you know, in the kingdom of men, you know, and, and you can see this, you know, if you think about a regal situation, and not, you know, get in your mind about, like, going to a restaurant or something like that, because, you know, one person you know, one day a person who works in the restaurant is in another restaurant. You know, that doesn't really have an idea here of what we're talking about. But in a regal setting, I mean, when's, when do you see, like, you know, a group of presidents or, you know, and kings of, of countries getting together and then they tell all the people that are serving to sit in those chairs and they're going to go make the food and bring it out to them and do that? That doesn't happen because the kings and presidents are the ones viewed as being in the important position and the others are lower than, and therefore go and serve them. But Jesus says, not here, because he is the king of the kingdom, and yet we see him serving his disciples, and we see him washing their feet. And so his way is different. So really, what someone should be saying, if they say, you know, I aspire to greater leadership in the church, it should be equivalent to I aspire to greater service. I aspire to getting my hands dirtier. I you know, aspire to helping others more. Not, I aspire. Thing. Not that. Not that. But these things are temptations for every every leader. We always have to be. Checking our hearts on these things because any of us can be susceptible to the same type of sin as Simon. I know that, you know, I have in my life and ministry have wrestled with these things of you know as having to ask myself why, having to have others ask why? Why? Why why do you want to do this? And so we ha- we have to keep going back and saying. It has to be for an audience of one. It has to be for Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate motivation for all of it. Um, It has to be that. And so we see here in verse 24, Simon's response, and this gives me some some hope that he's humbled and that he actually may indeed be a, a real believer when he says, pray to the Lord for me, that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me, and here he's humble because he he has to acknowledge that you know Peter and John have a have a spiritual authority that he doesn't have and that he can't have, and that he needs to humble himself before the Lord and before them. And it seems like here he does so. Um, so that gives me hope for Simon and hope for. All people. Verse 25. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. And so now again, you know, Peter and John who, you know, for them, like their, their lives have, you know, have been changed by the Lord, but they've also been under a, you know, when they first met the Lord, their lives were changed, but their lives have also been under a continuous process of change. Because remember again, you know, just um, back earlier in the, in the book of Luke, um, how they, you know, they, they wanted to have the Samaritan, that one Samaritan village, you know, destroyed. And now they're going, you know, instead of just going straight back as fast as they can, They're taking their time as they go back to Jerusalem to make sure they share the good news of Jesus in these different places. So now the teaching that they've intellectually acknowledged has practical legs to it. We get that? Because through the teaching of Jesus, you know, they've had to make some mental, like, I agree with you, Jesus— you know, you you know, God loves the Samaritans, and you, you love the Samaritans, and, and now I'm going to love the Samaritans. like they've had to, to make that mental shift, but now that mental shift isn't just a mental shift, it's also a practical shift. and And that's where intellectual knowledge is different from transforming um, active knowledge. you know i mean and, and we could talk about many different things in that area you can talk about generosity i mean you go i know i should be generous but until you practice generosity it's just an intellectual acknowledgement to god's way of doing things god's way that we should do things so it's just an intellectual like yes i agree with that with that conceptually but until you actually do it It's limited in its ability to to change your own heart and mind and to change, you know, things with other people. So that's where we have to, you know, that old saying, you know, it's like practice what you preach, but in this case, practice what you've been preached. (laughs) Grammar's not right on that, but anyway. um, What was preached to you, practice it. So what Jesus preached to them, now they're really practicing it. They're really practicing it. And that's a huge you know, shift. And you know, we'll see in chapter 10 that there's an even bigger shift that has to take place for Peter particularly. But it's a process. And the same is true you know, in, in, in each of our lives that you know, we're growing to see, hopefully we're growing to see things and practice those things more and more according to the way of Jesus. You're always going to be evolving and changing as a human being you're going to, because you're going to be influenced by lots of different things. You're going to be evolving and changing. That's just a reality. But in what ways? And what we have, what we have seen, I think, in a lot of things um, in, in, our, in recent church culture is that the church in many ways is being changed more like the world as opposed to more like Jesus and you could look at any number of topics to see that and to prove that out. And I don't want to distract by the topic, but I want to give that principle that we can easily see things more as the world sees them than like Jesus sees them. So we have to constantly, we're constantly in this, in this battle to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that's an an ongoing, continuous process to see as Jesus sees, but then to act on that information, to act on that knowledge, to live it out. But something that's really great that I love about what Peter and John did here, and I think it's it's a model for ministry, and that simple model for ministry is just share as you go. Share as you go. You know, and I, and I ran into this, we're running this sometimes um, down in, in, in Mexico when, you know, we're, we have our teams in the mornings and it's like, okay, you know, this, you know, this team is going to Texaco, and, you know, this team is going, um, you know, t- to Tequila, <laughs> or this team is going to Atluico, or wherever these teams are going. That the teams are like, okay, we're going to go there, and we're going to share the good news of Jesus with those people. Okay, but what about when you stop stopping for gas to fill the truck? And what about when you, you know, needed to stop somewhere to buy some tortillas? And what about you know, all of those people along the way every day who are just as valuable as the people you're going to see in these other you know, other places? But a lot of times we can miss, oppor- you know, and the, and the kind of the point with that is we can miss the opportunities that are right before us because a lot of times those people that we meet on, along the way, we meet along the way because God wants us to meet them along the way. So we have this principle here of share as you go. And we have, and, and with that, there has to be a flexibility that my my day of may look different than I thought it was going to look when I first you know, went out, am I okay with God shifting parts of how my day look? Especially on the parts of your day that can be more easily shifted, parts of your day when you're not at work, for example. But even sometimes at work, it can be shifted because somebody might walk into your part of the, of the work and they may be ready to have a conversation. And so can you take a couple minutes? You may have to stay late to make up those minutes or whatever, but are you okay you know, to, to do what needs to be done? So th- this model of share as you go, so when you go to, to run errands, there's an opportunity to share the love of Jesus. When you go to a restaurant, there are opportunities to share the love of Jesus. When you go to the park, there's opportunities to share the love of Jesus. When you go to work or to class, there's opportunities to share the love of Jesus. When you go do your hobbies there's an opportunity to share the love of Jesus. When you take a vacation, there's a, there are opportunities along the way to share the love of Jesus. And so whenever you, you do or wherever you go, there are usually opportunities in that. Few things are solitary and that you don't have to interact with any people. Um, and so along the way, there are opportunities to share the love of Jesus with people. And sometimes it's a full-on, like, here's... The gospel from beginning to end. Here's Genesis to Revelation. Like, it's you know an hour, two hour long conversation, and sometimes it's, hey, I just want you to know today that Jesus loves you. Sometimes it's, hey, is there anything in your life I can I can pray for today? You know, but to be open to the Holy Spirit and to, you know, be part of that as you go, because what 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 I'm Contending with there, the reason that that's valuable is for, for two reasons. One, every human being before God you know, is valuable before God and should be valuable to us. Every human being. So if I see those people that I interact with each day, even when I go, just go to the grocery store or go get a taco at Barberitos or whatever it is, that those people are made in the image of God. And that it's highly likely that God is doing, working in some way in their lives. And that I have something worth sharing with them because I have Jesus. So the person that's making my taco isn't just somebody who makes my taco. They're a, they're a human being made in the image of God and somebody that Jesus died on the cross for. When you see that person, you go, well, that's the person that makes my taco. Or do you say, that's a human being who Jesus died for? Well, that changes the game. It changes how we view and how we interact with people. And so even when somebody's given me you know, really bad service, I need to remember, I don't know what's going on in their life and that person's made in the image of God and Jesus died for them. So that changes from, you should serve me the way that you're supposed to serve me because isn't this a business and a capitalism, this is how you do, blah, 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 to, hey, I can see you kind of having a rough day. Is there anything I can pray for you for? Now, maybe you say that all soft and gentle, the person cusses you out. So what? So What? Because at the end of the day, we each stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And at at the judgment seat of Christ, I don't think it's going to be so much about the degrees that we've managed to obtain, the jobs we've managed, the promotions we've gotten, the types of houses we've lived in, the vacations we've taken. It's not going to be about those things at the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be, how did you love God and how did you love your neighbor? That's what it's going to be about. How did you love God and how did you love your neighbor? And so I have to see, and sometimes because of my sinful flesh, fail in those things. But that's always, again, an opportunity for correction. And in that, there's a certain amount of effort that's required, but more effort a lot of times isn't the answer. Again, it it keeps coming back to surrender. To surrender to Jesus and say my life is yours and whatever you have for it is okay. And change, change me. Help me to see that person I interacted with today, I didn't treat them like they were made in the image of God. I didn't treat them like you, like Jesus, like you died for them. Forgive me for that and when I see them the next time, will help me to go back, come and have the courage to go back and treat them how they should be treated. And the thing about that that is that's irregardless of how that person treated you. It's irregardless. It's irregardless. Because when I stand before Jesus, he's not going to give me a pass on how I treated the server based on how they treated me. He's not going to give me a pass based on how I treated my neighbor, based on how my neighbor treated me. Because Jesus has a standard for me. And his is the only one that counts. His is the only one that counts. And I need to be reminded of that. I I hope that I hope you don't need to be reminded of that but this more if you need to be reminded of that I hope you're reminded of that. To surrender and to be on mission with Jesus this week because when we live in surrender when we live in surrender to Jesus and we have that intimacy with him it's really hard not to love your neighbor It's really hard not to let the love of Jesus flow out to you. It's really hard to be silent about the ultimate potentate Savior and King of the universe. It's really hard to not tell anybody about the awesome good news when you're sitting there really close to Jesus. So this morning, as we take that bread and that cup, I hope that you sit close to Jesus. Wherever you are in your life and wherever, whether you've been, you know, one inch from him, one centimeter from him, whether you're five inches from him on the seat, ten inches from him on the seat, a yard, ten yards, hundred yards, that in surrender you would just be at the feet of Jesus. And so, Lord, make me like you. I can't make myself like you, but you can make me like you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your goodness to us. We thank you that your gospel is for Hebrews and for Samaritans and for Gentiles and for people from every tribe and every tongue, every nation, Lord. we're thankful that the barriers that human beings create can be taken down through You, dear Jesus. That at the cross where that veil was torn in two, You would be the... Jesus, you would be the mediator between God and men. There would be no separation. That in that, you also made it possible for every family of the earth, for every ethnicity, for every tongue to sit around the same table and fellowship together with the bread that represents your body and the cup which represents your blood. We're thankful that there's ultimately not only just one king and one savior, but ultimately there's also this one table. So Lord... We come to you this morning and we just say, make us more like you, Jesus. We ask you, Father, for that the power of the Holy Spirit. In your name Jesus, we ask you.